Hey everyone, it sounds like a movement, a show about weirdos, disruptors, pioneers, and make-believers who are changing everything. I'm your host, CJ Cassiata. My guest on this episode is Shauna Nyquist. Shauna is the author of Cold Tangerines, Bittersweet, Bread and Wine, and Savor. We talk about the strange, remarkable concept behind her latest book, Present Over Perfect, which is now a New York Times bestseller. All right, let's start the show. The tension is the point. It is not to be denied, it's to be sought out. It's the narrative that lets us know we're onto something. When you really can come from a place of vulnerability, when you can come from a place of, of friendship and kinship and understanding, I really think our messages come across at a different level. And people are then more responsive and open to hearing what we have to say. And they feel immediately connected to this thing that we hope will get out into the world. But if you really train your voice, you know, if you really pay attention to the particular, that's that's where your power is. Art is to remain in that tension yeah. and to tell the truth. So I, I always love to start off with this question, what was your childhood like? Well, what's interesting is I, I feel like a lot of this journey of my last couple of years has been reclaiming a lot of the things I was as a kid. The first two things I thought of, what was I like as a kid? Um, I was a bookworm. I was like, that like weird little kid who always had a stack of books, who reread books, who got in trouble for reading. Um, my, my best favorite thing was reading, um, especially novels and stories. And then um, I loved to be on the water and at the beach. My, my parents both grew up spending their summers on the Michigan Lakeshore. And when I was born, they made that um, kind of a pattern for the new family they were starting, that they would um, always spend summers on this little, in this little lakeshore town. Um, so my childhood was a big stack of books and playing in Lake Michigan. So basically what you're telling me is you got in trouble for reading books. Oh yeah, like, <laughs> um, like I was supposed to be practicing piano and I was just reading and just doing scales with one hand. Or in the middle of the night, they thought I was sleeping, but I was reading under the covers or I was bumping into things in our house because I had a book in my hand all the time. Yeah. I can only hope my kid, you know, has that problem where they're just reading too much. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. It's like real serious trouble. Real. You really got to worry about the kid with a book in her hand all the time. Watch out, everybody. <laughs> right. So you grew up this pastor's kid of a, of a pretty high profile church. Yeah. And I'm wondering, did that upbringing feed into this theme that you write about being present over perfect? Well, you know, the interesting thing for me is my parents started the church the year I was born. So I have no, like, it wasn't like you worked at a bank and then became a pastor. Like, I don't, I don't know what anyone else, what, what it's like to have any other kind of dad. And the church and I were growing up together year by year. So the thing to keep in mind is like, you look at it now, um, and it's like, a, it's, it's an established thing with whatever, whatever. Um, it was, we were literally building it year by year as I was growing up. And so I still think of it as this funny, weird little thing we all made together. And I know that that's not really what it looks like to a lot of other people, but it feels very personal, very family, very neighborhood to me, very much like this, this funny little odd thing we all got to be a part of. Um, and it was great. And for, for better and for worse, I... It was very much a part of our church. That was like the kind of the center of our world, but I was pretty disconnected from the rest of 
kind of national Christianity. I didn't know what a lot of those words meant. I didn't know a lot of like Christian language or Christian music, or I didn't know if I was or wasn't an evangelical as opposed to being whatever else. Like I just, there was our church and then there were Catholic churches that my friends went to. And that's really all I knew. And I knew we weren't Catholic um, because we didn't, you know, do Catholic things, but I didn't know so many of the other kind of intricacies of those divisions. I'm kind of glad I didn't like, I have, I have a lot of friends who carry with them a lot of, um, a lot of scars from sort of that fundamentalist wider culture. And I just don't know it. It's like an anthropological, you know, I just have questions about it. Like, who's that? What CD are you talking about? What book are you talking about? What weird conference are you talking about? Like I, we have my, I have my own weird stuff, but it's just specific to our church. So but a lot of us who grew up in religious environments, you know, there's moralism, we're taught that this is the right way to live. And so I'm wondering, did that did that kind of spark this striving for for perfection or did that come later in your life? Yeah, you know, I think um I think you're exactly right. I think and I wouldn't necessarily say moralism. Um and actually cuz I would say like my parents were remarkably laid back with my <laughs> extremely embarrassing wild teenage years. They were super cool when... I, I'm guessing this is after the terrible book reading season. Yeah, yeah. It, there was like a, a book season and then there was like a, yeah, uh, like a whiskey season. Um. It was a lot longer. <laughs> um, but uh, my parents were pretty laid back about that. But I think they were remarkably so now that I'm a parent. I'm like, whoa, you guys are amazing. Um and they were not, I did not feel, my parents really protected me from a lot of the pressure that goes along with pastor's kids to like, never have any questions, never make any mistakes, all that stuff. They were, I had a lot of questions and a lot of mistakes and a lot of weird boyfriends and a lot of, you know, piercings and things that like, oh, you know, pastor's kids never should do. Um, I think what happened though is some of that, um, pour yourself out for the gospel kind of idea. Um, if, if it's helping people, God's using it. Um, th- that kind of theology that, that God is so good to us, so we should work really, 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 really hard to show him how thankful we are. That stuff seeped in a little bit. And I would say I grew up with a, such a deep sense of like theological grace, like uh, being forgiven for your sins. Absolutely. Like God can forgive anything. There's no mistake too big. There's no whatever. Um, but, but in terms of just like being like not trying or not doing a good job or not working hard or not using your gifts or not, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like there's a ton of grace for that kind of stuff. And to be perfectly honest, we've had a lot of really interesting conversations as a family with this book. Like, um, I'd say this is a journey we're all on. Um, I'm really close to both my parents and to my brother. And um, we all love being a part of something bigger than ourselves. We love working hard on behalf of our church or causes that we care about. And all four of us struggle to rest and have a rhythm of life that feels sustainable. So that, you know, um, we talk about it a lot. And um, it's something we all want to learn to do better. So when did you first realize that this rhythm of life was unsustainable? I think I resisted it for a long time because I kept just thinking the problem was me. You know, like this is how you're supposed to live. These are the things you must do. So you just better figure out a way to be the kind of person who can do them. And I kept thinking if if I could just 
get a little more sleep or find a new way of managing my time or figure out another whatever, um, I will be able to keep up with this life I've created for myself, especially because it seemed like so many people around me were. Um, you know, I grew up in, a, in an environment of really high capacity people doing really big stuff. And it didn't feel okay to me to say, I'm not like you and I'm tired. That, that did not feel like something I wanted to say. And so I didn't for a really long time because I had this idea of myself, you know, I wasn't like, you know, like super like, like talented and I wasn't beautiful and I wasn't incredibly intelligent. I didn't have like a special thing about me, but I was like, I was like a, like a utility player. I could get it done. And the reason I got to stick around was because I got stuff done because I was dependable because I was responsible. And so I made sort of, I, I created a narrative that said the only way people will keep you around is if you hustle every day um, because you're not one of the special people that has the luxury of feeling things and slowing down. You just have to keep going. So how did this, how did this break sort of manifest itself? Like what did you, what did you start doing? Um, I, I think some of the realization. I mean, now I feel like your counselor or something like, so Shauna, tell me, <laughs> tell me, how did this manifest itself? Uh, one of the hard things for me about podcasting is I always forget that other people are going to listen to this. And I'm like, so CJ, let me just tell you exactly what my counselor <laughs> said. Oh, uh, no, it's fine. Um, I think I had the increasing sense that things felt different on the inside of my life than I wanted them to and that the insides didn't match the outsides. So things looked really fun and really busy and, and full of life and beauty and adventure and on the inside, I was so tired. I was just, my, my tiredness eclipsed all my other things. I couldn't taste the things I wanted to taste. I couldn't be present for the things I wanted to be present for. I was missing such, they were happening to me, but I wasn't there because the exhaustion had like dropped a shade in front of everything. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It felt like a, a veil had been dropped and it was separating me from the things that I cared about most. And I think that veil was deep, long-term exhaustion that comes from living disconnected from your most deeply held values, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I've, I've felt that way before. It's, it's almost a little bit of a guard. You know, I, I, I think this, this message, it's a little bit more subtle for women in particular, like it's learned over time, but for guys, this is a great message too, because, you know, we're told our whole lives, like it's, it's right in front of us, like go and accomplish things. Like if you're not accomplishing things, you're yeah. doing something wrong. Yeah, so totally. Tell me about that. Like, like why do guys need to hear this message just as much as women do? Yeah. And well, and I think that's an interest. There are two things that I think about that. First of all, um, when I was when I decided to be a writer, I did not ever perceive myself to be like a lady writer. Like I totally thought like, like I have a lot of guy friends. I'm close to my brother. I'll, like I'll read a book and people like Aaron and CJ and Joe Hayes will read this book, right? Like, and then I found out very quickly that um, most men don't read books written by women. Uh, that's just like a thing. Um, and so I found myself more in the. Um, kind of women's ministry, women's issue space, which is fine. It's a lot of stuff I care about. And especially as I was going through seasons of miscarriage and infertility and baby life, that, that felt really good. But it, it's actually one of my greatest, one of my greatest dreams for this book is that it would be helpful, not just for women, but for men too. Um, and I think because of the way I was raised, because I'm so close to my dad, because in some ways we have similar personalities, I do think you're right that um, 
I have all those typical things that women care about, you know, am I thin enough? Is my house clean enough? No, and no, are my kids, whatever. But I also have some of that, like, am I building something? Am I pushing hard enough? Some of those more traditionally male pressures. Um, I was raised to work and I love that, but it means that um, I feel both, both, both of those stereotypical sets of pressure. I feel both of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, first of all, we got to figure out what to do about, you know, the whole men not reading books authored by women kind of thing. That's, right. a, that's a whole other podcast, but that needs to, that needs to be fixed. Second of all, yeah, I just, I, I feel like, you know, we grow up with, with that message as guys, oh, we got to hustle. We got to hustle. We got to do, do, do. And there's all of these messages out there, you know, on television, on the internet that say the opposite of what you were saying. And it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to balance. I think there is, um, you know, as much as I feel really strongly about the cultural pressure on women, and I really do, like, I think, you know, now, now it's not just enough to like pile on the makeup. You have to get like surgery on your face when you're 40. Like this is a thing, you know, um, I, I feel really strongly about sort of what we're doing to women, uh, but I feel that about men too. I feel like the, the cultural messaging about like, um, don't feel your feelings, uh, build things, earn things, stay tough, do manly, you know, like, I just think they're equally unhelpful. And, and I wish we did a better job in our culture of letting whole people be whole people, um, as opposed to pushing some of those gender stereotypes. Man, I love that. You know, we had a uh, Tony Hale on the podcast a while ago, the guy who played Buster Bluth. On yeah, Arrest I love Element, him. And he's on Veep. He won some Emmys for that. And he was saying, you know, you look at that guy and he's, he has it all. He's got Emmys. He's got multiple successful TV shows. But he was saying, you know, every time I would I would get to the next point in life, I I thought that was going to make me feel fulfilled and I wouldn't be disappointed. But but it just stretched the goal farther. Like I I I, I got to that place. I arrived, and then I was like, oh, I want to go somewhere else. And so he was really talking about this this concept of of being content where you are and realizing that you can strive and strive and strive and strive. But in reality, at the end of the day, if you're not content now where you are, you will not be content when you get to the next thing. Totally. And I think for any of us who are, you know, in you know, creators, makers, performers, there, there's this, it doesn't, Anne Lamont have this great um, section of writing about how if you're not okay, not being published, you won't be okay once you are published. Um, Glennon Melton says there's no there there. And I think that's so true that if, um, it's very tempting to hang your worth on these very observable, measurable things that we can accomplish. Um, but the other side of it is certainly for actors, for writers to a certain extent is it's very mercurial and you don't always control the success of something. Sometimes a book sells and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes a show gets picked up and sometimes it gets canceled. And if your very worth is tied to that, you're signing yourself up for such a painful way of living, right? And and so far outside of your own control. And so I think for me, I'm running hard the opposite direction. And I'm saying what matters to me more than anything else in the world is my faith and my relationship to my family and my community. And if I can be responsible and present and connected in a deep way in my relationship with God, in my family, and in my very close circle of friends, uh, whatever happens or doesn't happen out there is is uh, sort of a bonus or or sort of a vague disappointment. 
but I'm not right. My, my very worth is not on the line, the line for this. I just can't live that way. One of the things I love about you, Shauna, is, is you've got this ability to call out BS in such a polite, subversive way. I mean, I just think it's awesome. No, it's true. And I remember reading this one blog post, I think it was a couple of years ago, about not calling yourself or other people like the next so-and-so. And I think you you had this image of a, of a penguin or something. And, and can you, I forget. Can you tell me about... What that was? Yes. Are you asking what? Why the penguin? I'm asking why the penguin. <laughs> okay. So the penguin. Um, my son is an artist and uh, uh, mostly a painter, um, and or he likes to draw. But he also took a sculpture class, and um, that penguin is just so clearly like someone's first penguin, right? Like someone's first sculpture, and I love it. I love that. Um, even as young as he is, he felt very comfortable as a painter and as, as someone who draws with like charcoal or pencil, but felt very uncomfortable moving into sculpture space. And so I made a really big fuss out of his penguin because I loved that he was showing the bravery and the versatility to, even at his young age, he, he had a lane that was comfortable and he moved into another one in order to be a learner. And so that's, that's the, the penguin in my mind is, um, He's learning. He's learning how to be a sculptor. And that's his first one. And I think there is so much pressure. And obviously, I feel it personally. Um, growing up with my parents, um, they're great about it. They didn't want me to be just like them. But every room I walked into is doing the math. Oh, is she like her dad? Or is she like her mom? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and in some ways, I am like both of them. And in some ways, I'm not like them at all. Mm -hmm. Because I'm just actually a different person. And um, I think I got a little bit of a late start as a writer because I was so wrapped up in trying to be someone else. And it took a lot of time and a lot of courage and a lot of counseling and a lot of frustration to say, okay, maybe, maybe here's an idea. Maybe I'll just be me. Oh gosh. You know, um, it, it took me, you know, I didn't start writing books until I was 30, I think because it took every bit of my twenties to climb out from under the identity of being my parents' kid. And that's not their fault. That's mine. Yeah, I remember I was talking to this mentor of mine, and we were we were pregnant with our, our kid. And, and uh, I was saying, like, man, I wonder who she's going to be more like. Is she going to be like me or, or like my wife? And my mentor just said, yeah, you know, but she's also, you're forgetting about the fact that there's going to be a part of her that's just, like, completely uniquely her. And that just hit me square between the eyes for some reason. I hadn't even thought of that. And we mm -hmm. tend we tend to shy away from that that concept for some reason. I don't know why as human beings, but but yeah, we're we're this complete we're born this completely unique individual. It's fascinating. Totally. And I think, you know, I mean, you know, the nature of kind of branding and marketing world is kind of the behind the scenes of that conversation is you are, frankly speaking, looking for the next so and so. Totally fine. That's how that the business side of those fields are, but not the personal side, not the creative side, not the spiritual side. Um, so there very well might be someone at my publisher looking for the next so-and-so or thinking I'm the next so-and-so, but I can't carry that in my life. I can't make that my identity in the world. Well, I think we do that because it's a shortcut. You know, the harder work lies in, in discovering and figuring out what makes us weird, what makes us different, what makes us unique. And I think once we do that, you know, the results are so much more sustainable. And I just think, I think you can always feel that as a, as a reader or as a person who's experiencing their art or their music or whatever they've, they've created. I feel, and I feel like it's part of being a young artist is um, emulating the people you um, 
aspire to be like. I think that's a necessary part of the developmental process. I think every band starts playing the songs that they grew up with and every painter wants to be the, you know, that's a necessary part of learning your craft. But if you don't leave it behind at a certain point and say, um, I've been influenced by a lot of great artists, but, but my job now is to cultivate my own unique voice. Um, I don't think you'll make something very, uh, very lasting until you do that hard work of finding your own voice. So going back to this concept of, of present over perfect, what were some of the, the rhythms that you began to, to cultivate in your own life that helped foster this idea of, of valuing presence over the ability, you know, just to, to get stuff done, to, to continue to hustle? I think it was, it's two sets of changes. Um, the first set is very much on the like practical, logistical, you know, I had hard conversations with my agent, my editor, my, the teams I work with, the, the church that I had been teaching for the, you know, and just saying like, Hey, things are going to be different around here. And, um, I'm not going to disappear forever, but I'm not going to keep being your number one team player. I'm, I'm going to need a little more time to regroup. I need to figure some stuff out. I need to slow down my deadlines. I need to say no to a lot of them. I'm going to let some great opportunities pass me by. And I'm going to ask for your grace as I do that. And so we had a lot of conversations. Obviously, it started with talking with my husband. You know, what does this mean for our family life? What does it mean that I'll make less money? What does it mean that I'll, uh, our house will be, you know, a little messier? What it, Can we withstand all of those things? Um, can you shore up some of the difference of some of the things I drop? Can you, you know, and ultimately what Aaron said a thousand times in a thousand different ways was, um, yeah, this will all be worth it if I get my wife back. If the silly, whimsical, spontaneous, warm, positive person that I married comes back because this like really efficient lady who has a plan for everything is not that much fun to live with. <laughs> um, and, and it's true. Um, I became extremely productive and not super fun to be around. And I regret that. And I had an experience actually, I'm, um, I went to visit some friends that I didn't know very well at the time and their way of practicing hospitality touched me in such a deep way that what I felt like was, um, it was like, like God turning the compass back to true North for me. Like they gave me a vision of who I've always wanted to be and who I lost along the way. And I have held that experience in my mind and used it as sort of a litmus test. Like, okay, if I say yes to this or no to this, will I be able to live with that deep sense of presence and welcome? Or will I be pushed back into efficiency and hustling? And if I can take on that job or that project or that deadline and maintain a soft, warm, playful heart, then I say yes. And if the only way I would get it done is by like putting on the armor again and being a good soldier again, the answer is no because I can't go back into that way of living and I can't put my family through it again. Yeah, you know what I think is so weird, and I, I think this is very American, is that we tend to have these like moments of clarity on vacation and, and we start to bake into our minds that, that you know, we're only supposed to do this once or twice a year if we're lucky. We're supposed to just work, 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 and then you know we've got these, these moments of just clarity and, and reflection and space and so, how do we how do we continue to work? How do we continue to provide for our families, do all that kind of stuff? Because you even said that you're a worker by nature. But how do we start building these rhythms in on a on a constant perpetual basis so that when we take vacations, we're not just going 
wow, this is the first time I've even had a moment to have this space. Space, presence, rhythm is a thing that we've grown accustomed to, that we've made central to our way of life. I totally get that. And, you know, um, my family has tended to be a um, work really, 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 really hard and then get on an airplane and collapse kind of family. Like vacations are like, like nobody talk for like 12 hours and then maybe we'll have dinner together. Like, cause we're just, just destroyed, you know, um, with the amount of work that we've been doing. And I, I adore my family and I aspire to be like them in a million ways. And that's a practice I'm trying to shift. Um, I don't want my days to be so painful that all I can do is ache for vacation. I want my days, uh, like, I don't think it has to hurt so bad. I don't think a whole meaningful life has to be so costly to our bodies and our souls. Um, There's no part of me that's like, hey, I'm done with meaning and mission. And now I just want to, you know, lay around and, and, you know, wear my hair in a ponytail. Like, I, I, I'm always going to be an intense person who wants to change the world, who wants to make it better, who wants to give my best self towards solving the world's hardest problems. Like that matters to me and it always will. And I'm learning this really like this little set of skills about like when you and I finish this conversation, I'm done for the day and I'm going to walk down to our neighbor's house where my nine-year-old is and we're going to play for a while. And I've already told myself I'm not going to be in a hurry to leave when I get there. And I've already told myself that there's a couple things that my, you know, efficient, responsible self wants to get done before bedtime that I'm going to intentionally leave undone so that I allow space for a good connection with Aaron, who I haven't seen all day, and with my boys. And it's, it's hard for someone like me because the metric of success has always been, what have I gotten done? And I'm working really hard to change that math into, have I connected deeply and well with the people I care most about. And that doesn't feel, it doesn't feel the same. I I kind of like it when I bust it really hard all day and then the house is perfectly clean and I've done a massive amount of things and then I can lay down and not talk to anyone. But it's, I don't think that's how we were made to live. I think it's better long-term to leave a couple things undone and intentionally apply that energy instead to connection and play. I'm gonna make myself play basketball in the driveway. It's 90 degrees here. It's like not at the top of my list, you know? But that's what my boys like to do. And so that's what I'm gonna do. Thanks, Shauna. Check out President Overperfect and all of Shauna's books on Amazon or wherever books are sold. You can also check out her blog at shaunanightquest.com. Thanks for listening to Sounds Like a Movement. For more conversations with weirdos, pioneers, disruptors, and make-believers, visit soundslikeamovement.com or wherever you get your podcasts.